where the American fate mercifully failed to transpire. <coughs> Don't get up. Bigfoot and he smashed on my door. Come on. After a long and busy day of civil rights violations, I found myself in the neighborhood and compelled to drop in just to check and see the current state of affairs at my old stomping grounds. Seeing as your effort to keep lines of communication have been limited, to say the least. Well, I've been busy. Trying to figure out which side of the zigzag paper is the sticky sign. Give it to me. Listen, I'm sorry, sorry about last night. You? Why should you be sorry? Weird. Okay, brother. I'm not your brother. How much you could use a keeper? Remember that day? We two boards had us off into that big storm. And you don't, that's me, your host, Kyle Brule. And if you've been joining us this season, it's a little different. We're shifting up the structure, shifting up the orientation. And that's because, you know, we're it's season 10. It's almost like a celebration. We're, it's a celebration season. I didn't even realize I would get to season 3, 4, 5, let alone 10. And along the way, 
I've been joined by friends, by community, by new friends, by new acquaintances that have come come along uh, the, this this study, this project, and it's been such a warm and welcoming and inclusive, you know, experiment that I've I've in in generating the content, it it has warmed me and connected me to a lot of people and. So that's why season 10, Dealer's Choice, I'm letting the the guests who have either been on one episode or many episodes, it doesn't matter, highlight a favorite of theirs. They got the kind of directing chair. They got the contribution chair to a limited degree. I didn't want anyone to be like talking about the Godfather on this season. You know, I wanted something special. I wanted something a little more off the beaten path. And they all provided me with a very interesting and very challenging picks, you know, and that's what the whole season is. The whole project of of this is about Understanding movies in a context of history, but also, you know, with every guest and every interpretation, every opinion, understanding movies from a a particular personal vantage point. That is always integral to the experience. That's what this season's doing. Uh, and I'm really excited to venture all of these picks. I didn't pick any of them. They are all picks from my guests. And uh, today is a doozy, a doozy in uh, a sense of genre, of history, of a novel adaptation, of filmmaker, and what what inspires and, and moves them. And uh, it was glorious to revisit. I hadn't seen it, I think, since it came out, and I'm excited to talk about that today. But my guest is the at the forefront, Mario Ruiz. He is uh, a dear friend, introduced to me from a mutual friend of the show, Gio Maldonado. Comes to us from Puerto Rico. He has his own production company. He's a busy guy, and he loves movies, and we love having him on the show. Mario, welcome back to I Know Movies and You Don't. Uh, how have you been? Thank you for having me once again. I'm, I'm doing well. Very busy but really excited to to talk about this film and the filmmaker and and all the complexities that that this the, this movie brings with it all of the complexity it's it's of one it. of the most complex and almost absurdly complex intentionally complex noirs that i've ever sat through it was a, a troublesome experience not not in a bad way a troublesome thoughtful Post watch experience that I've ever had in the movie theater. I, I was inter- I saw it at the AFI Film Fest in 2014. Paul Thomas Anderson introduced it, and it set me off on a, a like an introspection. Like, what does it all mean? You know, or does it mean anything? You know, it's one of those profound experiences. Inherent Vice. We'll talk about in detail later. But before we get there, uh, Mario, I, I want this. This whole thing is about you know getting to know my guests better, get, having an orientation and a foundation to understand why they picked their movies, and you know what does what does filmmaking mean to them in a very personal and particular degree, and so. You know, movies, you know, I grew up with movies. It was just kind of in the household. It was in the kind of entertainment uh, lexicon. Like, I was just sat in front of the TV if my parents didn't necessarily want to deal with me. But I also loved my VHS player. We we had a huge closet full of VHSs from uh, animated movies to classics that, that people grow up with that uh, it, from our, you know, our generation and uh, and and closer to, you know, the the younger generation today. 
But um, movie making, did, did, was it something that was just part of the entertainment fold of your household? Was it something that your parents particularly, you know, introduced you to? What is it about movies that uh, you found at like a foundational age to be so engaging and interesting to you personally? Well, I th- I think it started with my brother. He's about seven years older than me. And he had VHS. He had large amount of, of VHS tapes, mostly from movies from the 80s, because that's his childhood, basically. So I like inherited those VHS tapes. But it really, it wasn't that much as strong in, in my household. But I have an uncle who he was obsessed with film. And I'm telling you, this was this must have been like 96, must have been 96 or 97. I was around five or six years old. He had this massive collection of VHS. DVDs were starting, I believe. So he was also starting to mm-hmm. to collect DVDs. He had a projector in his living room. <laughs> and I remember we would have to I would I would have to go to church with my mom Saturday Saturday mornings and I would just beg her to let me go with go stay that night because we all the family would go to the same church. Stay Saturday night until Sunday just so I could just go to my uncle's place and just watch the amount of films that he had. It was just like this incredible space that I've never been. And it was such a special place. And then what really clicked is we were watching, and this is the movie that, that really it's, it's James Cameron's fault. Basically is what, <laughs> what I like to say. Um, he was, uh, he had just bought the DVD of Terminator two, my uncle. And then he, he played it for me. And I was way too young to, to yeah. watch that movie. Yeah. Um, but I'm so thankful he showed it to me. And as I'm just in awe of this movie. And I remember as it ends, I ask my uncle who's sitting next to me, like, what is happening? Like, how, how do I do that? How do, how do I get to that? And then the credits appear, James Cameron. And I'm like, who made that? And then he starts explaining what a director is. And obviously in my six, seven-year-old mm-hmm. mind, I don't really understand that. But from that moment, I was like, I want to do that. That's a With very my limited understanding of, of, of what a director is. That is a that very point. early age. I mean, uh, to, to yeah. like go like, I have this, th- I, I don't understand, but I want, I want to understand yeah. this. And uh, that that is pretty foundational. I love the connection with an uncle because I also, not filmically, but I have a connection with an uncle that brought me up to broaden my musical horizons. He took me to concerts at the like age of 13 to, to 16, 17, where I I was seeing bands like Deftones or Green Day live, you know, at a pretty foundational era. Mm -hmm. And then he took me to see Metallica and he introduced me to like Rage Against the Machine. You know, these these movie these bands that were were more raw and more angry about things that were happening that my parents didn't like. My parents were were not necessarily in that vein. And so I love that connection because I can relate to that. It's like to be introduced to have that broadening of your cultural horizons from fam- familial members that are not mm. that are that are direct but not not necessarily from the 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 initial household. I definitely connect with that. That's an experience that I, I think everyone should have a cool uncle, cool aunt that yeah. introduces them to to various things that are not necessarily within the household itself. Absolutely. And my uncle, he never studied film. He never like his circumstances. He he grew up in rough circumstances, so he like the opportunities and in Puerto Rico were not there for him to pursue it. So it was almost like he was. This is the way he could channel that love. Is just 
watching it. That was that was going to be his only way of just enjoying that 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 passion, which to this day is like his biggest hobby. Yeah. So so yeah, but he 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 did know enough to say like, okay, if you want to do this, this is what you got to do. Like, try to go to school, try to like try to make stuff in his you know in his limited understanding of the production side of it. Absolutely. Well, and it's always great to have somebody that you can share this with. I mean, to have an isolated interest is great. And I think even for him to have a nephew that becomes interested in what they are interested in, be you know, opens up uh, that love, that, that appreciation, that ability to share. And clearly, you know, as someone who went to film school, somebody who works in film today, that is pretty integral to your character and to your development. And so, you know, through that process, through, you know, sharing this experience, these experiences with your uncle, did that lead you down a path to then share it with other people to brought, you know, to open up the friend group? And then does that lead you into the path to choose film school? Uh, Yes. Yes, it did. Um, So I was very young when when I had those experiences with my uncle and then he moved out of Puerto Rico. He, He went to the States. So it was kind of like I was like abandoned by oh, no. someone I could share it with at that at that level at that amount of passion and geekiness so I would have to be the one like in in later in, in elementary school and in middle school like I was the one in the friend group who was like the the film guy the film geek he knew from like I was I remember I was one of the few people in in in, in my friend group who knew what he what he wanted to do with his life he was mm-hmm. like determined I was determined to to do this so I was known for that and then I noticed a shift in our friend group and actually Giovanni guest on the show, Giovanni Maldonado. He, I, I, I met him when I was in the seventh grade and I remember he was into music and other friends were into music or they wanted to be more traditional, like engineers or lawyers or doctors and this and that. And I would show my passion to them, specifically those artistically minded like Gio or another friend of ours, Townsend, who's a writer now, mm-hmm. uh, we would share in just like having screenings at, at, at you know, just watching movies at, at my at, at my house or at their house. And that's w- what also made me want to like dig deeper into like in film history on my own yeah. in the limited resources that, that I have. Like that's when I got into Hitchcock and I'm like, okay, I, I guess I got to go down the path of, of Hitchcock because I've been told that a lot of the, the filmmakers that I like like Hitchcock, so that that led me to to that path. So so it was it was a slowly growing thing, but it, I wasn't making anything yet uh, until ninth or tenth grade, and that's when like any chance that there was a, a school project, there was there wasn't a film program at my mm-hmm. high school. I know that there were some high schools uh, in the states, and that they would just have film classes. That wasn't a thing in my high school. Yeah. But any chance that there was a a group project, like I remember I did a, a, a short film, like a mockumentary type of thing for my biology class, just because I didn't want to give it a normal presentation. I wanted to to just make something visually yeah. with my, my dad's camcorder. And yeah, that's how it started, just in school, just messing around with my group of friends. And then I knew that, okay, I'm doing this and I got to get to film school. I convinced myself that this is the only way to get out of here and try to make it in the States. And that's what I had in high school as my my goal. I mean, and that's that's a pretty common story for a lot of people who find their passion in film. It's it's that 
you you lack the opportunities. And yes, as as you mentioned, several schools do not have film programs. They do not have film studies. Like the, it is a kind of it's seen as even though it's kind of essential in everyone's life in the sense of absorbing or engaging with content across the board, they take it for granted. And so there is not an insistence about, you know, teaching it, understanding it in a, in a way of understanding the modes of communication and media, that there's a lot to learn from it. I mean, obviously, there are special specialty degrees in this, and uh, we, we know this. It goes even beyond. There's like media studies, there's communications degrees. It's to understand all of these processes. And so I was, uh, to, to relate to this, it's, uh, I... I did have a, the luxury in the States to have been introduced to kind of formal process. In in sixth through eighth grade, we did have a elective where you could participate in a, the, a yearbook filming, where throughout the year you would get a camera, you would be assigned an event, and I would go to the track meet and film it. And you know, get get dynamic shots. You know, you know, not not interview anybody, but more of just a visual uh, yearbook tapestry. And we would take that to the teacher, and he would, you know, we would log it, and we would, uh, you know, generate a a kind of organization so that by the end of the year we did a yearbook uh, video to present at the graduation and uh, it was we got shots of all the graduates you know for that year i think i still even have the vhs copies somewhere of nice. like that work and and but but that was like very formal it was like oh yeah we take the camera we do this and we we have this thing and it was very documentary it was very much like just just capture the moment it wasn't very creative and it was it and it, the creative aspect was something i yearned for and so i had to then find it on my own i luckily had like a dv uh, camera that my dad had you know my dad was always up to date you know obviously dv not up to date now but dv of its time you know when i was growing up was very much an up to date avenue for for expression and so i went through those motions but it wasn't until high school where i actually did a film studies course and i actually quit i was in one class and she opened up the course by saying you know what's a great movie and it's one that's classic and she and she said you know like meet the parents and i quit the class then the that day not that meet the parents is a bad movie but i was like wait meet the parents is the the example that we're going to be utilizing for what's a great movie and i quit because i heard the other teacher of the same period was harder and sure enough, introduce the first two movies that we watch are Close Encounters of the Third Kind and then Francois Truffaut's Day for Night. And the first oh, wow. assignment was to compare the themes of them. And I was like, what is that? And I, it, it threw my mind into a different mold, into a different understanding. That's when it really kind of clicked. I had this foundation. I had this interest. I had this formal introduction. But it was how do we think about the art form differently in that sort of change. And I imagine, you know, you you have this drive, you have this passion, and you go to film school, and you went to USC, I imagine, right, right? Uh, yes, but that was for the graduate program. Oh, you went to a graduate. What, where did yes. you go prior? Okay, it's a, it's, it's a bit of a, it's kind of like inherent vice. Uh, <laughs> With your crayon, bit, we're, we're going to have a crayon, and we're going to try and connect all of the dots together. Yes, yes. <laughs> so. I really wanted to go to Los Angeles mm. from as a like straight from high school. That was my my dream. Unfortunately, I didn't have the best 
high school counselor. Sure. He was like, he was like, no, you're you're not gonna make it. And like, I don't know why he was so dismissive. He was like, everything I want, I was telling him, Los Angeles. I was like, UCLA, USC. You know, the big ones. Yeah. Uh, or NYU. I was like, I was dreaming big. Yeah. But then he would just discourage me, and and I was like, well. Like I kind of like bought his his bullshit basically, and then and then I basically started applying to other schools, safety schools, whatnot, programs that I didn't necessarily like, but I saw as like okay, this could be an, an opportunity that could get me eventually to California. I convinced myself, and and obviously my my dad was there to 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 help me with that. It'd be like yeah, yeah, like try these schools, and then you. You're still you're you're very young. You can eventually get there. It's not a race that that sort of thing. So I went to Syracuse, and not to say that it's it's a very good school, yeah. very good university, but the program wasn't tailored for what I was looking for, which was production heavy. And I was in the communications department there, which is more focused on the business side, mm-hmm. and they're excellent at that. But I was miserable by the end of the, my first year. Yeah. <laughs> so. The the third semester, so the start of the second year starts. I have my first class at the school of communications, and it's more or less the same. I speak to one of my professors, a photography professor, and I tell him I have the, like this crisis of like I, I I can't take this anymore. Like, am I doing the right thing? And it, mind you, he's, he's a Syracuse professor, and he's like, okay, you're telling me all these things. You have to leave. Mm-hmm. Don't tell anyone. I tell you, I told you this, but you have to leave. So that day. I call my parents. I'm like, I, I can't take this anymore. It's, it's. I'm wasting my time here. Long story short, I go to this this technical program, this conservatory in Vancouver. Okay. It's a one year program, and I was 19, and I spent the that whole year, and it was one of my best experiences I've had, and it was the first time I was immersed in production. Nice. Completely immersed in production. It was. It, I was in the film production uh, program. And we would just constantly be making shorts, documentaries. It was nonstop. And there was also a, a film theory component to it, which I'm very thankful for because it matched so well. It wasn't just like, let's make things in a void and see what happens. We mm-hmm. were like, also, as as you mentioned with your, your experience, thinking about theory, thinking about themes, thinking about the art form, not just the production side of it. Yeah. Um, so I finished that program. I finished my undergrad in University of Puerto Rico, which uh, was very crucial to me as well because I made a lot of great connections. I finished my bachelor's degree with uh, in audiovisual communications, and one of my my business partners now I met him there. So nice, a lot of connections that are still fruitful to this day. And then I went to <laughs> to USC on uh, in for for the film production graduate program. That's amazing. Well, and and it shows you that. You know, at we, we, we like to think that, you know, once you've chosen college, once you're like mm-hmm. on this path, it's like you you had inside you a, a knowledge or a drive. But sometimes people go into conjure like, I don't even know what I want to do. I don't know what direction I want to go on. There's the, this kind of aimlessness. But you had a different one. It was this aimlessness of like, this program is not fitting exactly what I want to do. That was similar to my experience. I, I didn't, I also chose safety schools and thought that I was not worthy of like the larger programs. I didn't even apply to NYU because I had it in my mind that I wasn't going to get in. And so I chose safety schools around it. And and in that process, chose to not 
joined the film program initially in uh, Loyola Marymount University, where I ended up going. And the rule there was, if you don't come into the program, you're not going to be in the program. Like, that was the rule. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> I saw your face. Weird. You're just like, weird. <laughs> like, why can't somebody change? Why can't somebody yeah. join? Well, they had these strict rules. And I even asked somebody, I'm like, I've, I, I actually have this interest in film. Like, I, w- I was a business major, very much similar to you. And I went, well, I have this interest in film and production and trying to make films. And they said, no, don't even try. Impossible. It was very defeatist, you know, towards like somebody who's like, hey, I'm supposed to be molded. I'm supposed to like be here to discover where I want to go and what I want to do. That's the whole process of college. Like you don't necessarily shut down. Yeah, you're just being shut down. And I fought my way and I was very clever. All of my because you, you have to have a broad, you know, foundational education there. And so with every class that had any any artistic or writing possibilities, I made them film-oriented because they fit in the the umbrella of that that consideration within the program. And so by the time I was ending my sophomore year, I basically had a minor in film. And I I went to them and I was like, look, I can finish this program in like a, a year. Like I could have finished it early, but I just took my time. But they were like, fine. We'll let you in, and uh, I was able to do it. I was able to make a fi- you know a thesis film. I made a documentary at one point, and uh, uh, I learned a lot. You know, production is not necessarily my forte, although I understand all the 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 broad dynamics of making a production. I am more about the like the the themes and what what goes into it, and so uh, I've I've sort of you know I, I'd make a great producer and may, maybe a decent director but uh, I have not m- made many opportunities for myself to do that instead I just watch a lot of movies that that's that's awesome too <laughs> I agree and you, you know and you know and you know what's funny about that you say that one of the most shocking things like like I've been to a few film schools mm-hmm. like throughout my 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 process uh, undergrad and, and grad and not a lot, not a lot of production students watch or engage with films. This is, uh, or, this or, is or not as, as many as you think. No, it's, this is shock- shocking. This is shocking. And uh, I, I always go back to a story from a directing class. Um, we all had to choose a scene to recreate. Like she was like, watch the scene and then you're going to recreate it with actors and don't try and just mimic it. Like try and find your own rhythm with the scene. Try and like do your own, you know, staging, your own framing for it. And it was shocking to me the movies people pick. Mm-hmm. I chose, and I was like, I, ch- I chose a scene from Doctor Strangelove when uh, Peter Sellers, uh, the his British colonel, comes in to see uh, the the the, cra- the the crazy communist oh, yeah. raving. You know, Sterling uh, Hayden. Sterling Hayden. Thank you very much for that. Sterling Hayden's character, and uh, yeah, I character. It, when they initially, and he's he goes on that like where where the madness starts creeping in, like where it's like clearly there's something wrong with the character. You can't even like get out of the room, and so it, it was that scene I. Chose, and then people were choosing scenes like planes, trains, and automobiles, Mean Girls. Not that these are bad movies, but I was just like, I was a little put off by. I was like, wait, are we are we filmmakers or are we are we journeymen? Like, are we are we just like uh, putting together the scene in the very pedestrian way that a lot of these things are done? What was shocking was when the teacher was like, no, no, that's a great pick. Who here has seen Doctor Strangelove? I was the only person in the room that had seen it. Shocking. <laughs> yeah. It is shocking. And and I think anybody who is 
in film should be engaging in film. Like you should be seeing what, what is possible, what people are doing. It gives you an understanding of where the currents of the industry are, like what people are, you know, are buying up or, or leaning into in a sense of the zeitgeist or what they think audiences want. And then you get the flavors. Like there's so many filmmakers out there with different textures, different ideas and, uh, it gives you motivation. It gives you influence. It's watching film is essential to being a filmmaker. And I think uh, when you have an industry and a film school built on just just kind of the practicality of it, you have an industry that we already have. The industry which is kind of lacking in perso- personality, kind of lacking mm-hmm. in initiative. It is just kind of basic and... Uh, that there's a balance to it all and uh i'm i'm very yeah. encouraging of it absolutely yeah um uh, <laughs> i remember like I, I i don't claim to have watched everything but i i have watched i, I try to push myself to to watch things out of my comfort zone or and yeah. constantly keep learning and i do remember this funny thing i think it was third this is this is usc grad school like usc grad school and i remember it was third semester and the professor was like, have you guys seen, she would constantly be referencing movies. And she was like, have you seen this movie? And I was raise my hand. And have you seen that movie? And I would raise my hand. And there were like two or three others that we would, we would be the ones that would have watched a lot of things. Yeah. And then she was like, at one point she was like, I know Mario has seen, has seen this movie, but has any other, <laughs> any other of the other students have seen it? And like, I don't say that like arrogantly or anything. No, no, it's no. just like, it was, it was a shocking thing because these were very talented people on the production side. Yeah. Many of them much more talented than me at, at that point, uh, for sure, because uh, they had ex- previous experience uh, working in, in the industry or, or other fields that contributed to, to production. But they were just they just weren't engaging. Yeah. And they didn't have that, that big of an interest, honestly. Yeah. Which was, that was the, the shocking thing. It's OK to, to not know it, but OK, then then engage with it yeah you know yeah oh and, and it is amazing that some people are very just really good at what they do but then have no interest in it, it's like the blinders it's like i i just know this i know this process yes. and they just don't want to understand the whole and it's that's fine you know because it, as long as the, someone's competent and they're doing their job you know that's all you necessarily need but it you know to have like a collaborative vision you right. you might need a little more broader vision uh, from from everyone else. So it is something that they can tap into, attune to. You know, with you with your sensibilities. That's that's where like the really the magic happens is when everyone's on the same page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and then in speaking with production, because so now now you work in production. So you started your own production company. Insane to me, like good kudos to you to you know to take insane on to the, me too. I know insane, insane to you. Yeah, I mean, but that's amazing. It's a it's an amazing effort to take on, and that you are doing music videos, you are doing commercials, yes. like you are you're you're the you're you're entering the vein of the early era of like Ridley Scott, Tony Scott, you know that you know <laughs> where where they were doing commercials, like that's how they got right. their start and venturing, and then they became filmmaking titans and uh so i mean that's probably your your methodology like you're doing this as a business you're doing your foundation you're going to have your money makers and then you're going to hopefully take take on the risk of maybe doing a feature i think that that's obviously your intention that's the intention and 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 also working our way through short films proof of concept short films that will build to 
feature feature that's what that's why i got into this really and that's why my two associates my 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 we're friends but we're, we're now business partners that we got into this with the ultimate goal of of telling narrative all, all three of us have different tastes and yeah. what are those narrative films want to be which is awesome yeah but we we got into this we all three of us have have masters in, in film production yeah that's why we, we want to we got into it because we want to make films absolutely oh and that is the goal that is that's the dream it's the goal and so with that you know the you're working in production in a vein of you know at other people's vision at other people's right. requests do you find it difficult to you know maintain a love when it becomes merely a job or merely a, the the delivery system of a job some people i i know some people have a disengagement from their love of the process once it becomes maybe a burden. But because you have a master's, because you sought this out, something tells me that you love the process and you love fulfilling even somebody else's vision or conceptualizing someone's someone's vision. What is it about the production process then that keeps you loving the idea of film or engaging in the idea of film what keeps does it make you appreciate all of its 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 facets and all of its specificity or you know what is it about it that you love in the production process yeah i i i agree i i think that doing like having clients and and catering to their vision can be tricky especially if if you if if you come from the narrative world and and you're used to writing or used to directing or even used to being another department head uh, such as a cinematographer or an editor it can be tricky but what i find i put that i have to put that aside like those those aspirations will, which i just mentioned will, will always be there and that's the ultimate goal but what i take what i what i what i retain is is constantly learning um even for example like editing has never been or was never my strong suit but mm. In the course of this production company, like it's, we haven't been operational in, in a year yet, almost a year. But I've been forced to edit a lot of the work just because of, of the circumstances. And it's like going back to, to school, going back, learning again mm-hmm. the basics, and then improving upon, and then keeping up to date with like what's happening now, what's like new technologies that are happening now. And and when I'm watching movies, I'm like, okay, now I now I'm kind of looking at it as I'm not an editor. I'm never I'll never claim to be an editor, but from that point of view. So in in that aspect, it keeps you on your toes that you can take with you. And then obviously it's not the most fulfilling in a creative sense, especially corporate work, uh, commercials, but you, you do take, like you mentioned Ridley Scott. That's why Ridley Scott, he's mentioned it a bunch of times in his interviews, like why he's so fast and so good on the technical aspects, apart from everything else that he's good at on the technical aspects is because he did so much of that work yeah. before getting into narrative films yeah. and even short films that it's just like second nature to him. Yeah. He ru- he so, runs his sets like a general. Like he, yeah. he the, it's it's just it's efficient, it's organized and it's like this is the job we got to get done. Let's go. And mm-hmm. it doesn't even matter the scale and the spectacle and he does work at a huge scale. I mean, if you look at Gladiator, you look at Last Duel, you look at his latest Napoleon, he's operating mm-hmm. on a scale and yet he's bringing it in in a sense of efficiency like he uh, he keeps yeah. pointing out in his braggadocio way i've yeah. made four <laughs> films in the time span that martin scorsese made one and mm-hmm. and and that's fair because he his training is in that like that that is what yeah. he's able to execute that's his expertise exactly yeah so so that's what i try to to 
like uh, when I approach these type of jobs, it's 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 that it's like I'm I'm looking forward to to keep learning, and what am I going to take away from it? I know I'm not going to take away the most uh, soul fulfilling, uh, um, you know, experience, but the, but something else I'll take away from it, and that has its gratifying uh, value too. Absolutely, it does. Absolutely, it does. And and I'm also working with like with with friends. Like this is a collaborative thing. I'm not on yeah. my own. That's what I love about it too. Like it's just going to be an easy transition when when we eventually get to work on narrative films. It's it's yeah. It'll it'll it's, it'll it's, seamlessly just enter a new phase. Yeah. yeah, it'll be more organic in that way. Absolutely. Well, today we're going to be talking about a movie that uh, again, it's it's almost a translation. Like you have to translate a lot of work from people's ideas, visions. Like they might be able to articulate something, and so in that process, adaptation, articulation comes into effect. You know, when you are creative, and you've chosen a movie that is famously adapted from an unadaptable source. And uh, before we get into the movie itself, I think it would be wise to get both into the novelist and the filmmaker today. Thomas Pynchon is incredibly famous, you know, for for a very particular style, you know, they almost call it Pynchonese, you know, in in the, the dense ability to survey the work um in in, in his novels, his his um his writing style, his prose. A uh, poet L E. S. Sisman wrote in The New Yorker that he is almost a math- mathematician of prose who calculates the least and the greatest stress each word and line, each pun and ambiguity can bear, and applies his knowledge according- accordingly and virtually without lapses, though he takes many scary, bracing linguistic risks. There's themes throughout his work, you know, big themes in all of Thomas Pynchon's novels from V, Gravity's Rainbow, Vineland. Is the world dominated by conspiracy or chaos? Are there patterns, secret codes, hidden agendas, in short, a hidden design to the b- bubble and turmoil of human existence? You know, that that is at core of the project of Pynchon. And in the book that we are going to be dissecting and talking about today in a sense of adaptation is Inherent Vice. It's been described as a simple shaggy dog detective story that pits likable dopers against the Los Angeles Police Department and its counter-subversive agents, a novel in which paranoia is less a political or metaphysical state than a byproduct of smoking too much weed. It is in this dissection that the, the book was a look back over his shoulder from the time of its publication in 2009 to the, to the sun-hammered SoCal of 1970, a very crucial year that bears a heavy thematic weight and character weight on the experience that we're going to talk about today. A time and place in which the reclusive author lived and was roughly the same age as Doc, uh, his protagonist, in order to examine the broken promise of a hopeful generation. The schismal moment moment when everything in the American fate seemed to sour and the sweet, heady period that apex with the summer of love slowly sloughed into a bloodied and despondent winter of never-ending discontent. It's about those who survived the 60s, told themselves stories to assert a sense of the pain, the madness, the gnawing sense of loss that followed the sort of hangover of a passing epoch at its time, the decade and the the, the damage that's been done. And Pinchon's novel is a kind of microcosm of this, an angry, bitter look back at an era left unprotected against an inherent vice, you know, a term that we will talk about in detail, a time so irrevocably changed that its deepest, most profound beliefs and works of popular art were then used to sell shoes and soundtrack fuzz dance parties. 
This is, uh, I mean, when I say angry, that's what Pynchon is looking at in a sense of uh, a bitterness of time and a, a time lost. And so Pynchon in general, I mean, we're going to talk about this work in particular, and it's a more of a, a modern foundational work in his career. But Mario, you chose, we, in, in choosing this film, you indirectly or directly chose a Pynchon adaptation, the only cinematic adaptation of Pinchon's work, which I think is pretty substantial and very difficult. So what is it about Thomas Pinchon that maybe you have a particular relationship with? And maybe to to understand the choice here, what is so intriguing about his vision, his prose, his description, his choices that that, that maybe signified a connection to the material maybe prior or after you had seen the film? Yeah, sure. Well, I have to I have to say I I I watched the movie Inherent Vice when it came out in 2000. It, it came out in 2014, but it might have arrived in theaters January 2015. Yeah. So I must have seen it around then. And I I only knew who Thomas Pynchon was because of of this movie because of my love for for Paul Thomas Anderson. I probably heard the title Gravity's Rainbow, but I'd never read it up to that point. Yeah, I my 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 only reference to it was in Miracle Mile. Somebody is reading Thomas Pynchon's Gra- Gravity's uh, Rainbow, and uh, it's kind of a like a little nod to the kind of absurdity and the chaos and the, the surrealism that mm-hmm. unfolds with, with everything. Yes. So, so that was my reference point. And then I watched the movie. I remember leaving the theater and I was with, I think Gio might've been there and, and a couple of friends of ours, Townsend was there, a friend of mine who's, who, who had read Pinchon because he, he's, he was studying literature. And we were just in the, this empty parking lot. And we were just like, what did we just watch? Like, was this movie good? <laughs> was this, was this like his worst movie? Was this like the, is this the first time he's, he's been off the mark? All these, like, it, it was a good conversation for sure, but something about it, I, I wanted to, to re- I, I think I mentioned it in the parking lot. I was like, I, I need to watch it again. I need to watch it again. I need mm. to give it time and, and go back to it. So I did. And the second time, I don't know, maybe a year later, I, I enjoyed it more. And then eventually I, I kept re- revisiting it and I kept enjoying it and enjoying it. And it became one of my favorites of, of uh, PTA. And then I got to the book. I was like, I need to read this book because there's things in this movie that I that I don't fully un- I don't understand. This is it's convoluted, but I enjoy it. So I got to the book. So Inherent Vice is my first pinch on book, and I absolutely loved it. And I think I connect with, and it's one of my favorite books. And I connect with on on like the first reading, the comedy is just so funny. Yeah, and that I think that translates really well into the movie. I think it's such a, I think it's PTA's funniest movie. Yeah, the references. Like the the way he he because it is in Los Angeles it interweaves like references to to films to to the geography I, I was living in L A at the time so I could I could understand there a lot is, of the references. There, Paul Thomas Anderson is the preeminent like L A filmmaker. Everything's set in L A. You punch drunk love, right. you know Boogie Nights in the nineteen seventies, the porn industry. I mean, Magnolia set in the San Fernando Valley. Like, this is a filmmaker who's like, I lived licorice pizza. Like, Mm -hmm. I lived here. I'm going to tap into what it feels like to live in these places, especially this fake Manhattan beach, you know, this artificial Manhattan beach that he's crafted for Inherent Vice. And and I think think PTA has mentioned 
like when he's asked, I think when he was doing press for, for Inherent Vice, he was asked, why, why LA and why your fascination with California? And he says, because, uh, because he feels like he has some authoritative mm-hmm. voice that he can speak about it. He doesn't feel comfortable speaking about somewhere else, yeah. but he does about his version of California. Absolutely. And I think that Inherent Vice is a good fit for him in that sense as to adapt. But yeah, going back to to the book, I I really enjoyed the humor, and also the characters were were, were so well realized, but also not not realistic in a sense. Yeah. But you kind of knew people like that, so there's this like push and pull of of like, is this surrealist? But this feels very authentic. It comes from clearly from from a, a genuine place that Pinchon is is talking about some sort of loss. Well, it's, and it's with and, this book. and it's also kind of hazy. It's this like hazy nostalgia. Yeah. It's like this is the right. Re- How do you recollect people? You recollect them in their exaggerations and their pronouncements. Like mm-hmm. th- they are absurd. They're idiosyncratic, and they're defined by again this hazy uh, recollection that that he he's playing around with. Like he he's like this. This is what it felt, and and what it might have felt like to be in 1970, like in the the peak of drugs being hand, handed around. The 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 kind of curdled nature of the counterculture as the authoritarian 1970s are on the brim. You know, Vietnam's expanding. Like it feels at a time of loss and a time of of great lost opportunity that Pynchon is holding on to. Paul Thomas Anderson leads into a different thing, and we'll talk about that with adaptation. He leans into a different sense of loss, a more like hopeful, melancholic, personal mm-hmm. loss of for the character. But Pynchon's looking at a time period, and he's achieving through the interactions of strange characters, the interrogations of people... Does it all intertwine or does each person's disparate experience play a piece of the puzzle of what is being lost? There's a multitude of loss here for all these characters. And Pinchon's kind of leaning into that apparatus, that that kind of puzzle work. That's very interesting for a noir. Absolutely. And and it's yes, and it's really interesting that he chooses noir because this is this is, as I mentioned, this is my first Pinchon book that I read, but I've since read Crying of Lot 49 mm-hmm. and uh, Vineland, which kind of composed the California trilogy. Yeah. And it's very interesting because this is the only one that has like enough distance from the period that he's talking about, in this case, the 60s. Because Crying of Lot, you're in the 60s. He writes it during, like in the 60s. And Vineland, it's it comes out in 1990, but it's set in like in 1980, but it also references the 60s. So there's enough there's not enough distance. It's still talking about people that are that lived it. Yeah. And now this this book, Inherent Vice, comes out 2009. There's 40, 40 years basically the, yeah. of the time period that he's talking about, and he keeps going back to this this loss, but choosing the noir that he didn't necessarily choose so overtly with yeah. the genre tropes and conventions of his other two California novels. Yeah. Is what I also really like because I'm also a big fan. That's why I connected with it too. Huge fan of noir, film noir, neo noir. So it's all of these elements tie into place of, of my admiration for the book. Well, and obviously that's what an admiration uh, Paul Thomas Anderson had, because obviously he in in crafting this noir. I mean, some people have called him the modern Altman, and it makes sense that he mm-hmm. would do his riff 
on the long goodbye. I mean, that's that weighs heavy on this experience. I think the Coen Brothers' Big Lebowski, also a kind of hazy stoner noir that looks back at all the same kind of influences. I mean, uh, Anderson drew inspiration for The Big Sleep, Kiss Me Deadly, The ba- the Long Goodbye, but also, like, oddly, like, Zucker Abrams-style comedies, like Airplane, mm-hmm. like Cheech and Chong's Up in Smoke. Like, you know, there, there's... And that's why I think you are correct. Like, Anderson has always said he wanted to make an airplane-style comedy, but here it is. This is his version of that. This is the only way he can do it. And it is very funny because of that. It's very... And and it's it's the balancing act that Anderson brings that is really profound in his work. So, Paul Thomas, so you're brought to this movie. I don't want to, like, undercut pinch on here, but I think think what, what is substantial to note is that his... His lyrical prose, his dense prose, is incredibly difficult to adapt. But if you if you think of Pinchon as a no, as a novelist of say of of lyricism, that it is essentially like following a track, following the kind of rhythms and designs of like listening to a good soundtrack or a good concept album. That is how his like novel approach is. And you can see that same rhythm in in works of Paul Thomas Anderson. L- Licorice Pizza is almost like putting on an LP of its time and mm-hmm. and seeing these vignettes, these chapters, these experiences as they kind of coalesce together kind of uh, in in a stringing along in a very I think a loose degree. Inherent Vice has that same kind of feeling. It is more of listening to the rhythms and sounds and the process of its time rather than it is about a, a plot or a drive or a narrative or something that is thematically resonant, although it has those things. So what is it about Paul? So you arrive to Inherent Vice being a fan of Paul Thomas Anderson, as most cinephiles are. I mean, what a what a grand figure he is over the influence of modern-day cinema. I mean, he invokes Altman, Scorsese, and uh, Kubrick at times in in his flourishes. He is really a cinephile that has become a filmmaker. He also somebody who denies NYU film school and to go <laughs> off and do his own thing. I mean, the, the, this is a romantic story for us all who love film, who want to be in film. What is it about Paul Thomas Anderson that you love? Uh, because I, and, and obviously, there are different iterations of Paul Thomas Anderson. There are his ensemble epics, and then he moves into, he sometimes moves into these very odd, personal, weird romances, and then he has, like these, like The Master and Inherent Vice, these these kind of liquid, you know, narratives that are about feeling and getting immersed in the the place and the people and the characters. They're sort of ensemble pieces, but they uh, they they don't really stride in the same way that Magnolia and Boogie Nights does. But what do you found find most impressive about Paul Thomas Anderson? Why do you keep going to his work? Well, uh, difficult difficult question to answer, but I must say that it started with. I think it's just a, an issue of, of timing. Like it was the perfect, like I grew up, like I mentioned my story with my love for film, my uncle, kind of around the, the period that, so my uncle leaves and I'm like looking for, for, for films. I'm, I'm changing my, my taste and trying to look for other types of films, more challenging. Uh, David Fincher was, was big mm-hmm. around that time, like yeah. late, uh, like late nineties, early two thousands, the rise of DVDs. So I'm just like getting into DVDs and, and I don't know how I stumbled into um, 
uh, Boogie Nights. It was pro- actually, it was probably my my dad mm. who was, who kept talking about this movie, and he was like, "Oh, you you, sh- you can't watch it though. You can't watch it." <laughs> like, well, but why? I want to. <laughs> like you're tell you're hyping this movie up, and so I eventually watched it. It was on cable, and I it was late at night, and I was like peeking over my shoulder, making sure my parents would, <laughs> wouldn't catch me uh, watching it. But it was such a mind blowing experience because I'd never seen anything like that up to that point. Yeah, and obviously the the element of you're not supposed to watch it is makes it all that more crucial. <laughs> so I just knew from that moment that this filmmaker was for me. And yeah, and then I started to look for other his other films. Up to that point, There Will Be Blood was about to be released. So I could only watch, you know, Heart Eight and Magnolia and Punch Drunk Love. I I, I watched all of them except Heart Eight. And mm-hmm. it's just it just kept getting I was just intrigued with his work. And then when when There Will Be Blood came out, that was it. Like I knew he was gonna be you know, you know when when you you choose like like I do this with sports too, like I choose my 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 favorite player, and I'm sticking to him. Doesn't matter if he if he's gonna have a good season or a bad season, but he, I chose him, and he's <laughs> he's he's mine. He's my favorite. He, I so, mean, he so is... kind of did that with him. He's incredible and uh, undeniably incredible. I think every, everything he's done has some something to appreciate about. It's funny that you said you avoided Hard Eight. It's that that's Hard Eight is the the kind of uh black sheep of the of the family mm-hmm. only because it is like so independent it is so early it's like when you watch bottle rocket from wes anderson like you mm-hmm. see elements of what where the ambition and where the vision was going to go but they were clearly defining it or figuring it out you know where yeah. he explodes with boogie nights boogie nights is an explosion of Scorsese inspired tracking shots and mm-hmm. char- Altman inspired Altman, yeah, yeah uh, a character ensemble and you're just like the the collision of this vision and the authentic mm-hmm. p- time place like the feeling of the porn industry in the 1970s the feeling for all these characters and their individual stories and textures and how they all in- integrate in a sense of the shift of the 70s was a peak for their their careers and then the 80s brings like an end to all this dream that they are having that that was false really in the end you know and and Anderson is really good at mining those territories like to put us in either in a play, a time and place of its authentic feeling, or how a character feels about that. Like Punch Drunk Love is how does the San Fernando Valley feel for a neurotic, like you know, mm-hmm. who needs to calm down, like who needs to be brought down from his anxiousness and his paranoia and his uh, lack of self self worth. And and then so the movie messes around with the manicness and the the busyness and the noisiness of the how the character is feeling and operating and then calms down when there's love and there's purpose and there's meaning. Uh Butcher Club, by the way, one of my favorite movies of all time. I absolutely adore that movie. So I've heard. So I've heard. <laughs> and so Paul Thomas Anderson just is like a modern encapsulation. And I like that you've chosen this movie because Inherent Vice is, I think, across the board, an underappreciated deviation in Paul Thomas Anderson's career. When I saw it, it was quite a substantial... Uh, it, it it didn't necessarily fit. It fit kind of in, in his filmography. You can see the essence of like the same time period of Boogie Nights. You can say, see the ensemble kind of positioning as, say, Magnolia. 
but it's not those things. It's kind of like the master, but it also is not like the master. It and so um, let me set it up for us. Let me set up inherent vice. This is where I'll go down my diatribe, and then we'll just open the floodgates and and talk about it. But like many American filmmakers of a certain age and a certain degree of artistic ambition, Paul Thomas Anderson has always had a thing about the seventies. You know, it, it it reflects he reflects this in a kind of literal way. You know, with his um, many co- uh, completed features, four no five of them are period pieces. You know, or I think maybe six of them are period pieces. You know, is it, it and and Boogie Nights goes to the seventies, Licorice Pizza goes to the seventies, but Inherent Vice is also in that that vein. The seventies and the new American cinema hold a looming place of a great kind of heroic time for younger American directors. And he kind of leans into that apparatus. He has leaned into it to kind of evoke its time, evoke its influences, the filmmakers of its spirit, and to say something about today. You know, like Boogie Nights, which followed Dirk Diggler from the blissy self-discovery of being a 70s teenager to the uh, to the the hangover of the 80s. The events of Inherent Vice vibrate with the shockwaves of a definable cultural shift. The film is set in 1970, the year of Anderson's birth, something that I think he is... that, that that's a personal touch and a personal note to why he was captivated by this story in its essence. Its protagonist, Private Eye Doc Sportello, played by a shaggy-eyed Joaquin Phoenix in one of his most mumblest of, of roles, hasn't got the memo that the counterculture is over. He still wears his hair long, his sideburns smother his face, and he conducts his investigations between regular drug-inhibited in- intakes. He is dis- despised in a collegial way as a hippie scum by uh, his a sort of mirrored opposite uh, Christian Bigfoot Bjornsson and his prince who's his principal contact inside the LAPD. As far as the rest of the police force are concerned, doc is possibly a fugitive member of the family. The name Manson is dropped more than once in, in kind of spooked tones. Inherent vice takes place against a tumultuous period backdrop. It's 1970 in the surf houses and hippie shacks of Gordita Beach, California, a fictional South Bay town based on Manhattan Beach. At a time not yet fervent with Vietnam War protests, yet fueled by Nixon-era and post-Manson family massacre paranoia. Upon its release in 2014, Paul Thomas Anderson's adaptation of Thomas Pynchon's neo-noir novel Inherent Vice was met with what might best be described as muted appreciation from the director's fan base. With an unruly runtime that stretches past long works like The Master and Phantom Thread and comes with a contact-high reach of such epics as Boogie Nights and There Will Be Blood, Inherent Vice, for art's temporal breath, seemed to, to say very little with its, seber- <laughs> with, with its unfurling of Pinchon's fractal-plotted Shaggy Dog detective story. You know, it has an expansive runtime. It's devoted to anecdote rather than incident. Every scene is cluttered with world-building details. This is a film as inhabitable environment. It becomes irresistible to fans who want to be there, but infuriating to others who don't. Beginning with a classic woman with a mystery noir setup as uh, old as the genre itself, the film quickly veers into the book's strange searching rhythms, a picaresque, hazy, lazy, daisy chain of chapters in which the perpetually and increasingly stone dock knockabouts into one-on-one confrontations with heartbroken cops, hippies, hitmen, ex-junkies, sax players, government snitches, feds, flatlanders, all of whom lay bare for Doc the memories and loss that haunt their lives, all of whom spin and slow orbit around the convoluted case after it goes after the the subject goes inexplicably 
inexplicably missing. And Heron Vice is a film that tricks us into settling in for a noir about a man solving a mystery and instead presents us with a man confronting a melancholic truth. Everything, the lives, eras, and loves, comes to an end. The inherent vice of existence, its sole unchanging irony, is that times inevitably, unavoidably change. It's rooted in noir, rooted in hard-boiled tradition, but to say that it, it wraps up a mystery or has answers... That is falsity. You know, the simple investigative quest springboards Doc into encounters with a cavalcade of characters, and yet the answers find them do not find their way into the crazy portrait of this America writ large. Confusion wrought by social and political upheaval is compounded by the abundance of mind-altering substances. Um, and it it distills the particular essence of a swath of American history for the screen, but it has broken from a diptych model of those works in which two characters and performances full of iconic historical implications are pla- placed in confrontation. Phoenix and Brolin represent this. Viewers who tried to locate in this sprawl a kind of Coen Brothers Lebowski or Altman's Long Goodbye there are similarities, but if you are going to try and utilize that to understand it would be a mistake. A mystery in which the mystery isn't the point. A detective story in which the detective seems incapable of remembering all but the most basic facts. A film noir set not at night, but mostly beneath milk split murk of L.A. County's smog white daylight. Inherent Vice is like the novel, deceptively uses its hard-boiled detective fiction framework as a method of inquiry into something deeper. At one point, they describe, for insurance purposes, they describe inherent vice. Um, The term represents that which will inevitably change due to its nature. The film Inherent Vice is an investigation into the ultimate universal force of change, as well as its central subject, time. And it bases that investigation for the modest ground level vantage of of those who dazedly, sadly, watch it go by. Uh, As as the... Sortilege, uh, uh, you know, the narrator says, eggs break, chocolate melts, glass shatters. The, that is what, in essence, the passage of time is to the idea of inherent vice, the idea of the, the mystery, the idea of looking at a time and trying to understand it. Scene after scene from comedy, uh, skips from comedy to paranoia to drama to American lament to satire to sorrow and maybe even all at once in the same scene. Pynchon's impossibly alliterative rogues gallery of brokenhearted burnouts and his his difficult prose make its way onto the screen because of a careful and detailed adaptation that Paul Thomas Anderson does. There's an, uh, there's an audience that might enjoy Inherent Vice purely on a level of a stoner comedy, and yet it's far too rich and cleverly made for such one-note viewing. It's two and a half hour runtime says that as much. There's another segment of the audience that might look upon the film and expect a true to form film noir set in the 1970s, but then grow exasperated by how several of the subplots seem unresolved and how the mystery never quite works, though each and every through each and every strain. But then some of the strains are imagined and later forgotten in Doc's head, and so the film becomes less a tried and true mystery than an immersion into an adrift culture performed so wonderfully by Anderson's ensemble cast that the metaphor takes on a striking prominence. Anderson's film is brilliant, it's unique, it is different in his uh, in his oeuvre, and yet I think it comments on the very notions of his project and period pieces. And so Inherent Vice is a mystery to us all and asks us to maybe consider what what is the act of looking in the past? What is the act of trying to understand it is it 
in order a means to move from the future or to uh, heal ourselves in that, that understanding. It is existential. It is probing. It is personal. Doc is investigating a, a, a loss of love and personal connection, just as Pinchon is trying to articulate the 1970s of his idea. And so, with that in mind, Mario, what is it about Inherent Vice, you know, initially that you love? Wow. I just love being in, in that world with those characters. I love the tone of it. I'm, I'm, I've mentioned in previous episodes that I've been on, I, I'm a big fan of, of tone and capturing a tone from from the get-go and being consistent with that. I love how it uses humor, but at the same time, being a very sad movie. It's a very, it uses very mad, that, very sad, that, that sadness, that longing for something that has, that is, that's not coming back and just utilizing it, not undercutting it, but using it at the same time with the humor. I think it's, it's it, the way it does it. It's very unique. I don't think I've seen a movie, at least that I've enjoyed as much that does that. Um, so those, th- th- that, the characters, the fact that it subverts, and that's why probably I didn't enjoy it the first time or enjoy it as much as I thought I was going to subverts the fact that we don't get answers. It just keeps adding questions and keeps adding questions. And, but it works perfectly with the, you mentioned the haziness of it, the haziness that it puts you in it in PTA puts you in the mindset of, of doc and, and him being a, a, a private detective who, yes, there's this hazy quality, but he's actually very good at his job. Yeah, it's just that yeah. at the same time he's gotten in something that is that doesn't necessarily have answers that he can just uncover. So that unique element mixed with the the other things I mentioned before, it's just it gives it that uniqueness that I that as I've kept rewatching it, it just makes me admire it even more. Yeah, the um, the red herrings that are evident are the fact that it's ensemble presentation. And the right. fact that it is a period piece, much much in the way that you might connect it to, say, uh, the the venture of Boogie Nights. And yet, I think what you said is we are put in Doc's perspective. This is very close, closest that he's done up into that point to Punch Drunk Love. It is a character piece. How does Doc... Mm-hmm engaging with the mystery how is doc engaging with each character how is doc putting this all together i think it's crucial i made a joke earlier about the crayon but doc at one point has this giant board of mm-hmm. names and he's writing it with crayon he's trying and trying desperately to see how it all connects and it's in that that sense it's in that sense of desperation that doc is trying to understand what is at, at core that that Paul Thomas Anderson kind of shifts. This is the kind of integral adaptation shift that he does is that it is about his personal loss about this person, this love that he has lost. And what does it mean to him? And how is he going to try and venture all of these erratic, disparate stories that seem to interconnect, but they don't really, or, or if they ev- inevitably do, does it provide a clear picture to the loss that he's experiencing, the loss of this personal touch that he has? It is all in Doc's mind. It's pr- a very personal mode of, of what Anderson is, is trying to articulate, that melancholic, lovelorn story that is really personal at, at the core. It's very personal, and I think it's this is one of the things that I most admire about the Anderson, the writer adapting the book is that 
Pinchon a lot, like obviously Pinchon is a lot of things, but a lot, a lot of the recurring themes that, that Pinchon goes back to is conspiracy and, and, and what is real and what is not. Is it a hallucination? Is it really happening? And I think it does that so well, connecting it with, like you said, with the personal touch represented with, with Shasta Fey. Yeah. The character of Shasta Fey. And, and that is, that's such a, I, I couldn't have imagined like, writing like first adapting it and then like directing this movie like the complexity of, of trying to maintain that that uh that vision of we're focusing on this character's mindset going through these things these hallucinations dealing with reality and loss at the same time it's very complex but, but the balancing act is complex and obviously i think it eludes mm-hmm. a lot of people how complex like the the deviations that happen like the question marks of whether something is happening or not like you know uh, when we see something in film or we're seeing something in kind of a detective orientation what is provided on screen might be evidence but what evidence mm-hmm. do we have you know uh, even the whole setup with narration which i think is a clever tactic uh, utilized by anderson is that sort of as you know the uh, played by singer songwriter joanna newson is doc's astrologer friend but she acts as narrator but the narrator this omnipotent astrologer you th- there is no more unreliable narrator than an astrologer like you know and how they are trying to craft this artificial meaning and understanding of the universe as it might be seen she might be on screen standing for kind of pinch on's prose but but really she's a voice maybe in doc's head she might not even be speaking to doc like or or speaking for doc it might be some kind of creation in order to try and put things in order you know this under the influence outlook muddles the understanding the as the mystery continues to unfold and so narration doesn't help this is part of its subversion part of its frustration for a lot of people is because I think uh, you have to try and understand it in a more broader context, a more a personal context as well for Doc as he goes through this mystery. What is he uncovering? Is he uncovering a, a conspiracy? I mean, they make jokes of it. You know, as soon as he talks with you know the the Black Panther, and he there's a, a minor connection that starts to arise between the conversation he had pr- the night prior to then he puts paranoia like you know paranoia question alarm mark. question mark <laughs> and so it's all about that it's it, you know it's it's almost anderson looking at pinchon's themes and going back to these these ideas of of conspiracy and saying that perhaps that even that lacks an answer yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I totally agree with the point that that's sort of age is such an interesting character because you don't know if she's real or not. I know, yeah. I I don't think like besides Doc, no one makes eye contact with her or or acknowledges her presence. No. So that puts it into doubt if she's real or not. I've I've seen She might be the one controlling she... the Ouija board. Like, you know, it's yeah. it's it's that that very thing. <laughs> absolutely. And 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 she's definitely like typically in narration, especially in hard boiled. It's about like getting to the truth, trying to get, trying to peel away at at the mystery, peel away at the layers. But she does like that never happens, and she's even like confused in one of the the, the points of narration. Like okay, I think there's she she has a prolonged okay, and like she's just as confused as the audience and Doc at that moment. So a great subversion of 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 genre conventions. Absolutely. Well, and and such a 
Uh, what what a tactic to adapt this book, and a difficult project to adapt this book. It is uh, unadaptable in many people's perspective, and I think by its core concept, it is unadaptable. And so this is why uh, the the process of adaptation at Anderson kind of takes a shift, a shift in perspective, putting it really heavy on the investigation for what it means for Doc. You know, in that personal loss of love, because. You know, it, it, through the core of the of of the book, there's this anger that Anderson doesn't identify with. You know that that he didn't live through this time and he did not get to. Li- He's born in 1970. He it's almost as though it's an act of like trying to uh, understand the year of my birth and why it was so contentious. You know, it's it's looking at this time. I didn't get to experience what curdled. I didn't get to experience the idealism. I'm only I've only experienced the aftermath. And so he doesn't relate to the anger, but he does relate to the idea of looking to the past. And so it's through that process that the he even said the obvious thing here, Anderson noted, and uh, of the '60s while doing press for the film is that they fucked up and they lost and they let it slip away. But I think deeper than that is the thing that Doc has for Shasta. That's something that everybody can get with. The girl I shouldn't be with, but I need to know who she's fucking. Where did she go? What did I do? That was really heartbreaking in the book. That's what he identifies. And so while the book, the novel, used a broken relationship first as the broader metaphor for a disintegrating nation in order to facilitate the angry ruminations of the American dream betrayed, Anderson reverses that, looks at that era puts us in the feeling of that place, but it's about tra- tracing it back to the metaphor for the pain of lost love that drives it back, which is really inventive. It's It doesn't betray the novelization, it, but it, it, it inverses the context. It makes... Pinchon uses this to generate a commentary, a broad look at something, and to try and distill a feeling of the time. Well, he, uh, Anderson uses the cinematic medium in trying to relate to a personal uh, idea, uh, the emotional core of a story. I think that's a really great use of adaptation. How do you feel about that? You know, in in that reversal, absolutely agree. And I think both. I think the book is great because it does have that broader sense of loss, and I think it would have the movie wouldn't have hit as strong if it if it was so faithful to that. And I think what Anderson does and it's is best exemplified in that scene where uh, he gets the postcard and it triggers the memory of, of, of doc and Shasta searching for, for there's a, there's a weed drought and they're looking for it. And it's just a scene in the rain. And it's just, I think it's one of Anderson's, most beautiful scenes he's ever it's done, really personally. sad too really like, sad. It's, it's sad in its memory it's joyful in the experience like they find mm-hmm. this like comfort but it is in that recollection that it's just so beautifully rendered and because of its beauty is sad what 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 look at what has been lost what i don't currently have it's a, it's a really great use of flashback it really is and and joaquin phoenix's performance just him I think they do it multiple times. He looks at the postcard, like he's trying to figure out what he, how to get back to that, or why, why can't he have that again? Yeah. Even, even like at that point, Shasta has already returned to his life, but it's not the same. It has circumstances are not the same. The time has passed, so it's something that he he can't 
recuperate. It's 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 completely gone. No, she she's an interesting figure, and she uh, and, and Shasta is the one that you know hangs over the entire mystery and proceedings. The one who sets things in motion. But what is she setting in motion? Like you know, this question of whether she was there in the first place. Whether you know the 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 sex scene that they have that uh, where where she comes and is invokes exactly where where you know Sortilege and in narration describes her, you know in at first when she arrives she's looking just like she swore she never look, but then arrives later on looking exactly like he had imagined her and has this moment and then. De- a devastating declaration at the end that uh, of it that sh- w- this doesn't mean we're back together. Whether that moment's real or not, the impact is the same. Doc is experiencing this kind of recollection, and it it is a truly. I mean, if you look at it from the personal character, the, and the character represents a lot, you know, in the fact that they have not taken away their visage of the 1960s, the counterculture, they are continuing to live in the kind of hazy idealism and yet carrying that cynicism of realization at the same time. That's a hard thing for somebody during this time to to be, and yet Doc is representative of the shift. He's representative of the the loss of this innocence, the loss of this love, and Shasta is the embodiment of it. Catherine Waterston is incredible in in the movie as as this elusive femme fatale that sets things in motion, but also as this haunting beauty that. Uh, you you ghostly kind of yeah, yeah ghostly yeah she it, it yeah. is a ghost a memory that just hangs over the hazy recollections of doc and the understood the trying the ability to try and understand his present that you would be haunted by this woman like you know there are women in your life that you know come come and go and yet some you know linger in their essence linger in their sense and i think anderson is clever by c- capturing that idea through Catherine Waterston, and she embodies it so perfectly. Yeah, I, I think then that that we can talk about the the performances. I think uh, she hadn't been in a in a big movie at least up to that point, and I think from my understanding, she was about to ready to quit acting before uh, she got the, this part. And I think it's just one of the because honestly, like PTA's movies mostly focus on men. Yes. And he's had yeah. he, he he to be fair he has had like really amazing uh, female performances like um, the one in Phantom Thread comes to mind. Oh of my course. goodness! Yeah, Punch Drunk Love, of course. But yeah. but this one sticks out just because it it feels so. It's hard to describe. It's got that that feeling, like I said, ghostly and and yeah, it, we hadn't seen up to that point Anderson like work with a, or or write a character i know he's adapting it but write a character in that way um and i think i think she's she's great i also think jenna malone like all, all the women performances are incredible in, in this movie even though like it is an ensemble and we mostly see doc and like it's it's not really a, a term in terms of, of screen time a lot of of presence but the women that are in the film are are just amazing and sort of lege as well it is it is how like the men contextualize or make decisions with with the women in mind. Like you it, yes. it it's Doc in trying to understand the power, you know, whether real or imagined, Doc loves Shasta. You know, whether, uh, you know, Koi, what what he wants to come back to is in the plea, the, the, and, and I think 
it's purposely uh, named in character. Her name, Jenna Malone, is Hope. You know, it's yeah. it's this kind of thing to preserve, to come back to. All, all and and then you have you know the relationship Josh Brolin has. You know, it, it you you <laughs> can you can interpret the 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 the, the idea that he has no relationship with his wife. We're not even given her face. She's shot from like the, the neck down because mm-hmm. almost like though she's like a parent in like a peanuts panel, like, you know, and it's, it's almost like mumbling and that he's so defeated. He's so not himself at home in the way that you imagine him to be. And, and the, the, you get the idea that that dedication to his partner was that it might've been more than partners. Like you get this idea that there's something yes. more to him. And so Everyone is making decisions or or based off of an idea of the past or an idea of of who they are dedicated to. I mean, that's that's how you can kind of put everything together in a sense of characterization and mystery. It's, you know, while while Shasta is the one late, you know, the one he can't forget, the one who got away, the one that time passed into terrible wrongness. Everybody has a Shasta in this movie. Everyone has something that they're looking mm-hmm. back on that they're all trying to either preserve for their present or or are locked in a sense of the past that they can't look to the future. That that is crucial to understanding the personal touch that the the characters have in this movie. Yeah, I agree and and that's why I think her performance is so incredible because she doesn't she has that effect on the movie but the screen time she's not in it that she there's a not big gap long. where she's yeah. she's not in it at all but her presence is constantly there oh no and it, it has to be a powerful performance in order to like invoke that like certainly she's in, invoked by name and keep, keeps us in our sure, mind sure. but it's the importance that's why it starts at that moment in a in a a, a kind of melancholic blue that robert ellswit catches doc in mm. looking forlornly at like the ocean waves or looking at the past and here here she comes enters into his life again uh as as most noirs do but the implication is different right it's not at his office it's not it's not formal it's not bureaucratic it's not business it's all personal and that's what matters. Like that's what it's the personal that sets everything in motion. And uh it's it's crucial to the themes of the movie, the ideas that Anderson has in mind. We can talk about the performances um and the char- and the characters like Joaquin Phoenix is central to to understanding it. You know, not he has this ghostly apparition, he has this memory that she she embodies so brilliantly, but Joaquin Phoenix, this is one of his finest performances. You know, I mean, he, he's got these slurry rhythms as Doc, and he is one of the slurriest actors. You know, a lot of his performance kind of invoke the same kind of ideas, you know, from either various vantage points. But he plays Doc, who's an ex-drug dealer turned licensed hippie private eye. He twists under his own intake of, of drugs on a regular basis. He, he's barely conscious when a vision appears in, in his anti-orderly beach bungalow. You know, Doc is sent reeling into his own past and the past of his others, his city, his country, his era, finally kind of washing up on a shipwrecked shoreline of his relationship with Shasta. That's the process of inherent vice, the 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 inevitability that things will change and that relationships will change. Doc is looking and peering into those implications, trying to understand them as desperately 
as we try to understand the mystery. They still, you know, he, he is a classic hero at the center. Doc is the only character in the world of inherent vice who refuses to take kind of a compromising deal at the end. He he sits outside of, of this world, much like, you know, and this is the context where the Coen brothers come in, much like the dude sits outside of all the isms, all of the philosophies, that everyone kind of you know finds themselves in, and it, because once you dedicate yourself to that to a particular ism, you are open yourself up to hip, hypocrisy and contradiction and paradoxes. Everyone in this movie is filled with paradoxes. We have a, a DA who smokes pot and and finds uh, solace in Doc's bed. Like we have a. A uh, Black Panther who finds uh, uh, connections with with uh, with Aryan the Aryan neo Nazis like you know they have similar they're... opinions about the U.S. government. Yeah, exactly. Like we we have uh, FBI who are in 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 bed with with cartels. Like uh, everyone is filled with paradoxes, but Doc is not. Doc is trying to find himself through someone else and trying to try find himself through love. And I think that that is uh, a wonderful and, and notion. The only, the only, th- sorry to interrupt, oh, no, but yeah. the the only thing that he really stands for at the end is like he doesn't accept the money. Yeah, and and he says to 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 Sortilege that uh, like a daughter not seeing her father again or, or something along those lines is that that doesn't sit well with him. Yeah, so it's like trying to do the right thing as. As as that could be that come could come off as cheesy, but it, within the context of this world of everyone being hypocrites and 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 not really living as what they they exude on, in the exterior, that's it's very it, it pops out. It's very interesting, and that's why he's our hero. Yeah, that's absolutely. why he's heroic. Absolutely, yeah. The direct quote is: "Nobody deserves to go through life without seeing their daughter." That don't mm-hmm. sit well with me, and. Mm-hmm. It, it it is that it's the little kid blues that they refer to. It's like, mm. do we do we hang on to our own selfishness or our own consideration of happiness at the expense of others, or do we try and help? Do we try and help one person? Do we try and help one relationship? Is that what then matters? You know, in the in the chaos and the messiness and the disillusionment of his time, obviously holding on to that sort of that sort of feeling is heroic and uh it's it's a wonderful notion it's a really wonderful notion that anderson provides i want to ask you about joaquin phoenix this is uh one of the finest actors of our time really pretty undeniable and and his variety that he brings whether it's in her or you know the master or gladiator you know or you know the joker even you know i'm not a fan of joker but performance undeniable in it yeah he is a pretty remarkable person who can bring out a sense of the weird but also i think what's what's crucial about doc is he's weird he's otherly but he is also charming in his essence like in that mumbling in that incoherence in that unthreatening demeanor that he can bring to this character his fascination with like sexual encounters you know like he is some a hero and a protagonist we can get on board with because he is just so lovable in a way, you know, he, he's unassuming and unthreatening. And I think that that helps with Joaquin Phoenix. He can be threatening in performances such as Joker, Mm -hmm. but he's able to kind of twist that weirdness into kind of an affable one here. What, how do you feel about Doc as our protagonist, Joaquin Phoenix performance, like everything about that, whatever you want to talk about, let's do it. I I, I absolutely love his performance. Uh, I think 
I think it would have been. Uh, I don't know if you know that that initially it was going to be Robert Downey Jr. Yes, for this part, I did. I did know that. Yeah, which would have been interesting, but it it definitely it's hard to picture the movie without Joaquin. Um, I think he has that weirdness that you mentioned, but he also has this this odd like purity in yeah. this movie that we within his his excess excesses that he lives by. There's still this char- that gives it a charming quality. He's he's inviting. He's not repulsive at any point, which is very interesting to have a a PI character have those traits, which is not normal or or not traditional, at least in film. When we think of like these types of leading men in these in these roles, so um, I think it gives it a very unique quality that maybe you think of someone like Robert Downey Jr. playing a more like stiffer. Giving it a stiffer approach, more I guess conventional. I would, I would have been also, interesting. I would have also think that Robert Downey Jr. There, there's, there's not. I'm, I'm going to try and word this correctly. I don't like. I know that he has, he has the ability, but with Joaquin Phoenix, there's just an inherent sadness. There's just yes. an unquestionable sadness. I don't. I, I just believe that as he sits there. He doesn't have to invoke a feeling or a facial expression. He just mm-hmm. is sadness, you know, as as you look upon him. It's been utilized before. Robert Downey Jr. could act sad and he could invoke it, but it would take work and you would then see the rhythms of the acting. What instead Joaquin Phoenix just kind of lives in that space. Yeah, lives in that space and it's it and also like when it, when I mentioned like he, he has this this inviting thing. Like you want to you kind of feel sorry for him that maybe in a Robert Downey type, you, you, you want a bit more distance uh, as opposed to being more inviting as, as doc is. Yeah. And yeah, apart from that, his, the, the physical aspects of this role are, are just incredible. Like his body, like his body type fits so well, the way that the, the clothes by, um, uh, Production, I think the production designer is David Crank and, and costume designer, designer, Mark Bridges, like, phenomenal Mark Bridges is look. one of the best in the business in- incredible incredible work because the the wardrobe is doing so much with Joaquin yeah that's why I referenced that 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 specific shot it's a close-up of him hold, holding the postcard he's just and he's just looking at it and it's just the way that the clothes feel on him like weigh him down and it's just you don't need dialogue for that. It's just, it's saying so much. And, and it goes to the sadness that you were referencing with him, that you just feel sorry for him and you want him to not feel as, as bad as he is. So he has that that charming quality he within uses, the weirdness that he embodies. Absolutely. And he uses his body, his physicality, not only in a sense of emotion, but also, I mean, w- when we talk about this movie in while it's sad, while it's a character piece, while it's longing for something or looking to the past, it's the kind of melancholic nostalgia it's very funny, and it's because Joaquin Phoenix is kind of, you know, utilizing his body in this physical screwball manner, where like he gets knocked down by the police officer at one point, and then mm-hmm. because the police are walking, he still continues his journey. But he starts maneuvering and weaving, oh, yeah, yeah. like exaggerated weaving. Like it, it shows that the character like learns and reacts, and then it kind of because of 
his spatial and hazy recognition of like he, he has to like operate in in an exaggeration of movement. <laughs> I love when he gets hit by the the bat and he <laughs> and he just like hits throws his fist in the air. Yeah, yeah, trying to fight back because it's a yeah. delay, delayed reaction. But <laughs> delayed reaction. <laughs> he he is great. I mean, uh, and talk about use of like dark humor as well. Like when when he. Um, shoots, you know the the guy after he beats up on the the Aryan after they are you know hold mm-hmm. hold him hostage and they're torturing him and he uh, he shoots the guy he's like did did I hit you <laughs> did did I hit you <laughs> like he's just, like that's what comes to his mind he's like I just need confirmation like from the guy even though that doesn't make any logical sense <laughs> no yeah it's 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 amazing um yeah and, and even right before that moment when he's he's lifting himself up to to unchain like unchain himself from the cuffs that he has uh, on the tube it's just it's really really impressive actually a, a really impressive acrobatic physicality yeah. yeah i mean he is doing the, the, he's i mean he's really running the gamut here there's uh, obviously the movie itself weaves in and out of these tones it's it's overly absurd or surrealist it's it's funny in those times um it's it's dizzying and and illogical at times where he's also acting confused in all of its puzzlement and then you know he, there's serious notes there's there's uh there's pain there's dramatic yeah. ways it really is asking a lot of him and and he really it's it's not an ensemble piece like we said it's like it is Joaquin Phoenix plus guest stars. Like that's really mm-hmm. what it is. It's it's him immersed in this world and how he engages with everything else. It, it, we are we receive redundant information from people. We receive all of these notions of understanding, and he but he's the one that we are tethered to. We are anchored to his experience. I mean, he's muttering to himself, kind of like Elliot Gould in The Long Goodbye, but he makes yeah. Gould sound like Richard Burton. Like, you know, he is, Phoenix really is, I mean, it's a brilliant, witty, emotionally true presence. And uh, without him there, the character could become intolerable, but he really anchors it so well. I agree. And what also is the key to 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 his his character working so well in his performance is the balance the 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 counterbalance of of having uh josh brolin yes yes giving like my favorite performance of his uh it, it might be the best of his career yeah i think it, so it is uh it, it, it if not up there i mean the, talk about some some i mean god the embodiment of lieutenant christian f bigfoot bjornson is one that is so truly felt i mean he walks it he lives it he's doc's lapd arch nemesis unbeknownst to either of them really is is that that they are these these shadow selves of each other which is i think mm-hmm. crucial to understanding the time period and the, the this idea of what do we recollect of the past you know bjornson looks back to the 1950s you know his partnership you know you know being a cop during that time it means something different now he the, he in his his own visage is a different context than what he imagines himself but he he's he's a hard ass a buzz cut wearing civil rights violating policeman he taught he is referenced as uh you know they that He's a, a SAG member, as, as they call him. Yeah, Sortilage describes Lieutenant Detective Bigfoot Bjornsson as SAG member John Wayne Walk, flat top of Flintstone's proportions, and that little evil shit twinkle in his eye that says civil rights violations. And he, we, we go in and out of his exposure to that. You know, 
you know, Josh Brolin plays him with deadpan genius. You know, he stews over not getting enough movie and TV offers, sucks and chews on chocolate covered bananas. Um, But it is in that kind of infantile mismatch buddy thing that describes him and the parallel of Doc that is integral to the movie, even if at, at first exposure, we see it as something something off-putting or something weird or something that does not necessarily make sense, but they are integral to understanding each other. Uh, so, Mario, your ideas on uh, Bjornsson. How, how do you feel about Josh Brolin and this character, what maybe he represents to Inherent Vice? I, I absolutely love his character. And uh, I have, there's a quote, there's a line that he has that is hilarious the way he performs it, but it also says a lot about him. And it's when he brings in Doc to the police station for the first time. And he says, look, I've been referred to more than one time by the LA Times as a renaissance detective. Okay. (laughs) Which means I am many things. One thing I am not as stupid. It says so much about what he wants. He wants validation. He also feels small. We get that glimpse from his home life. He's miserable. But he finds odd joy in just having that relationship with Doc. Yes. He really, it's like a brother yeah. that he hates and loves at the same time. It feels like a family thing. And they're also philosophically at odds. Um, the the conservative beacon of, of masculinity, which is him. And then <laughs> you counteract that with what Doc is. Like yeah. this hippie, loose, you know, pot smoking, hazy character. And I think it's rendered so well. I also love how he how he, he how he constantly fucks with with Doc when he calls him and he says, "She's disappeared." Yeah, she's gone, man, baby. She went all groovy on us. Like he's trying to be hip. He's trying to yeah. connect with, <laughs> with, but also trying to fuck with him, like misleading to think that Shasta has died. Yeah, I think it's just I I laugh every time. I think the the humor comes. I think it serves a, a bigger purpose, of course, within the the film. But the humor that that the character represents and it's it's unbelievable. Well, uh, and you've put it so well because they are sort of antagonistic. They are representative of different ideologies, different presentations of both masculinity and both of a philosophy of its time. And yet, they're integral to each other. They're almost kind of feeding off each other. They're mirroring it. We we and and the more we get to understand about about Bjornsson. The more we learn about the the partnership that he has, mm-hmm. the 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 masculinity, the odes of like the the personality that he puts as a front versus the vulnerability that we see at home, you know, where he's defeated and inf- def- deflated. There there is a performance that he that he has and underneath the surface there's damage, there is a loss. There's a as you said there is brotherly empathy for each other because there is a kind of shared misery between the two. You know, they've both lost who who an essence and understanding of who they are because they've lost somebody. And there's mm-hmm. this strange symmetry, symmetry at one point is surrealistically and beautifully literalized when they cannot stop speaking the same lines of dialogue simultaneously, where they're just like repeating after each other and having this mirror of each other. It, it, it's almost it's interesting. It's so literalized that it it almost like belabors the point, and yet I think some people mi- misunderstand it because it is so mm-hmm. elusive in its its definition. 
they are each other. They are, they have lost, they have been changed, and they are all looking back to a past to try and reorient and recontextualize themselves. If anything can unite us, it's in our sense of loss or our sense of, of, understanding a world that maybe is not what how how we imagine it to be anymore you know when our understanding and identity has changed that is something we can relate to and doc and and bigfoot are the same and that's why they're just they're linked throughout that's why doc is constantly not only seeing him on tv but then he speaks to him through the tv like it, mm-hmm. it, you know it might be again it's this stoner level you know, articulation that his haziness and his mind is just, uh, you know, so bent that he's having these surrealistic uh, stoner touches, but it emphasizes that they are just intrinsically connected. They are, they are representative of a curdled 60s, you know, idealism, and then the loss of a kind of formal, more innocent 1950s that, that, he, that he goes back to. Both are gone. Both cannot go, we cannot go back to either. They they are solidified in time, but both are kind of trapped there and trying to understand what their present has to offer. And uh, the, in, in, in doing so, they are both caught in that investigation of self. And that's what's beautiful. It's beautiful in the movie. And, and again, it's on surface, very funny. But when you really get to the core of it, when you really mine the information that you are given, the, the information that really matters... It puts everything into perspective. Yeah, and 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 they they need each other, and and not only does Bigfoot talk to him, which could like like you mentioned, hallucin could be hallucination, probably is a hallucination, <laughs> but also like he's they the presence of Bigfoot is always in in Doc's life because he even he's a, he's a SAG carrying like he's a, he's a SAG member, so he's an actor. Yeah, so he's he's on the he's on the TV, and the TV's also. I think it's a visual, very interesting way to to present the world that we're in. Doc always has, or, or most of the time in his apartment, has the TV on. So that presence of of the of of law enforcement is there and embodied by the Adam Twelve show. The Adam Twelve, yeah, so, yeah. So it, I think it's it's funny because in, in the scene, Doc is making fun of him, but it's also very very important to to the world that that Anderson is is presenting. Absolutely. Yeah, and and they they might be a little toxic for each other. Any relationship oh, might might have some tox toxicity to it. I mean, uh, v- very much so when he like exits buildings and then in slow motion, Bigfoot's just beating him for like the pleasure of it or just the <laughs> the outlet of it. But certainly, they, there's a necessity. There's a necessity and and a kind of dialogue. And there's a respect. There's yeah. a respect because the scene the 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 scene where he's eating pancakes. <laughs> that's that's the moment. It, <laughs> it's hilarious but it's also it's also uh, a moment where doc shows how good a detective he can be yeah when he explains what he needs when he explains to, to bigfoot no my hunch is correct i i wasn't uh, like i'm not an idiot like you think i am that i was bailing on on chemistry class or whatever like this is what you need to do this is why you should follow this lead mm-hmm. and you see it in the performance you see when and it angers him it angers bigfoot that damn like he's also like i respect him i i'm annoyed and i hate certain things that he stands for but i i i need him in this as well absolutely they need each other and uh it's crucial to understanding the dynamic the relationship the intent because obviously the the narrative is just so incomprehensible and bonkers like i mean 
really, you could lay it out. You could lay out a diagram of who's who and what's what and how everything kind of links or partially links or how, how everything sort of unfolds. And again, I, I, every time I, I try and, it, you know, in, encourage people to watch is I try to encourage them to not make sense of the narrative. Because obviously, you know, it, I think it was in an interview Peter Bogdanovich did with Orson Welles. And Orson Welles said he didn't like the big sleep because the narrative didn't amount to anything. that, And it didn't, it didn't amount to an answer. And I think Bogdanovich responded with to, to Wells that some of the scenes that you do are so good that I don't even care what they're about, nor do I care what they're saying uh, or what information is being delivered because they are about, you know, I get lost in the rhythms. I get lost. It's like getting lost in music. And I think that's crucial to understanding Inherent Vice. Certainly there's a lot of... There, there's a lot of information given, a lot of context for the the the, the time. I mean, in, in, in skulking in the margins of inherent vice, you know, you you have uh, you, you have Manson's trial happening. You have uh, a world where you you can understand the context of of songs coming out like Helter Skelter to to that that tap into a time you know contentious as they were and uh delirious as they were you know because Vietnam. vietnam's happening you you see nixon on the television all of it is kind of given to you an essence of w- what is this time and place you know w- what if all of this is you know of the 60s and what does it mean the disillusionment the disassociation that everyone has with its time it's all on the periphery. I mean, you can get into every character. I mean, we have Michael Kenneth Williams as Tariq Khalil, you know, where really what what's that essence to the story is that Tariq is owed money by a former convict, Glenn Sharlock, who currently works as a bodyguard for Mickey Wolfman. The, the paranoia alert starts to come. But it's in the connection to Wolfman runs even deeper than the bodyguard. It's it's he's been released from prison and Tariq was horrified to discover his entire neighborhood in Artesia has disappeared displacement disillusion the con- the inherent vice that that really shouldn't be inherent vice at all you, you know these things that some people do control such as these uh real estate magnets are in control of these sorts of things but then you can get to Jenna Malone Hope Harlingen you know a a, pr- a prospective client you know ex heroin junkie current drug counselor and mother you know where she caught in that cycle of the of of a company putting people on drugs you know utilizing cartel drugs to put people on drugs and then to clean them in a kind of constant cycle of using them in uh, a kind of literal cyclical consumerist uh usury that that, that they have you know, it's it's all of the how those people link together. You get to the dentist you, who is loosely linked. You get to Coy, um, played by Owen Wilson, who is kind of the direct kind of the direct focus. Really, once you get to the end, that you know, if you save one person, maybe you uh, if you save the con- concept of one family and one whole, that maybe something might be worthwhile. It's all very confusing. There's no point in getting into all the details and try, to try and diagram it. But Mario, what is it about the, like getting reinvested in this mystery and these people, these these non sequitur vignettes that somehow relate to each other? I always look at it as a tapestry of 1970. 
that there's a displacement for all these people for a variety of reasons. And, and it could be systemic, it could be governmental, it could be the conspiratorial hands that are beyond us, that that perhaps, and, and I don't think Anderson is saying they're not, but I think that he's saying that they're a part of the the complexity and the weaving of this narrative. But how do you, because this is a favorite of yours, obviously a lot of people will be frustrated by the lack of answers or the lack of, or the lacking of really, really understanding all of the fine strings that link everyone together. There is connection here and they are representative of something large. And then they are personal stories within themselves. And I think that's the point. And I get lost in the rhythms of this. I get lost in the characters of this. And it and it lets me know a fuller picture of what Doc's trying to understand of his time, place, and circumstance by being the one that they get to tell stories to and to maybe understand their own sense with Doc uh, just being there and engaging with it. But how do you respond to the this complex narrative, this complex mystery and the unanswerable quality to it. Yeah, there's there's an unanswerable quality. There's yes, the the plot can be incomprehensible, but I don't think it it doesn't feel true, and that's what I I like about it. It it definitely feels true to the world we live in to this day. It's it's about the seventies, but it's or sixties set in the set in nineteen seventy. But it's it's a lot of things haven't changed, and I think that we can or I grasp to I I find a connection to. Um, I, I do get lost in the tapestry of the characters, their sadness. I, I I think one of my favorite scenes is when after for many reasons, one of them is because it's it's a clear reference to the long goodbye, which is um in the Chris Kyla Dawn Institute, Doc finally finds um Eric Roberts' character, Mickey Wolfman. Yeah. And it's so reminiscent of when Elliot Gold finds uh, Sterling, uh, Sterling Hayden. Hayden. Yeah. It's 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 a clear visual homage it's a clear homage yeah um and we think i remember watching this movie the first time and thinking oh this is when we're gonna get the the answers this is it's gonna unravel now and eric roberts who has a very small but interesting performance he basically says that he had a bad hippie dream so his friends are trying to wake him up from it Mm mm-hmm which is try to have things go back to the status quo of him being a powerful magnate, real estate magnate. And so that the displacement can continue, right? So everything goes according to plan, whether that's a conspiracy or not, that's part of the, the, the elusiveness of the film. But then we cut to doc and Dennis, his friend reading about it, like reading about the, the newspaper clippings about Eric Roberts has gone back to business as usual. And, you just sense the sadness in his face in, in the, it's just pictures of Eric Roberts and then doc reading about it. Yeah. And it's just like that, that like disillusion of, of what could have been. I, I think it's, I, I do get lost in that, yeah. that theme and, and how that's presented, not only with Mickey Wolfman, but the, the characters that, that, that affects as, as, as you mentioned, like M- Michael K. Williams character is affected by that. But so do so does uh, Owen Wilson's character. Every everyone in this movie is affected by that loss. So yeah, that's that. I don't mind the incomprehensible na- uh, nature of the plot. I'm honestly less and less a fan of traditional plots or, or needing answers in a mystery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that isn't like sure it can be fun, but it's not reflective of of the world. So I think he, I think. Um, 
the book and Anderson are capturing that. Yeah, it, you are looking at a time of that that in 1970 the hope is gone. If if not totally disappeared, there, mm-hmm. it lingers. It it's just it lingers in the mind. It lingers in the possibility, and mm-hmm. the fact that uh, you know w- uh, Mickey Wolfman, mm-hmm. you know Eric Roberts, that that he is awakening from the dream you know that yeah. that, that he he's in a position that maybe of change you know using maybe perhaps wealth and position stature to change the dynamic to change to put into to practicality the the dream and obviously waking up being you know being put through the process of it, it's almost like a is an ideological lobotomy, you know, is what's mm-hmm. happening to him and deprogramming, deprogramming, taking it out of him, and as you said, the status quo is preserved. It was like a moment where change might be possible, might happen, and it retracted, it disappeared, and some people remember it, some people linger in that in that memory, and that's the feeling of inherent vice is full of that feeling, and. Maybe this is a good time to talk about our last subject that I have before conclusions. It's it's how it's shot, how the oh, tone yeah. is done. Robert Ellsworth's cinematography not only enhances like the fun, silly screwball paranoia of it all. It almost has like unfinished uh, staircases at times, but it really is in the, the this tone, the sadness that it sits in the melancholy of a time lost and the possibilities gone of love, personal love, but also of history. And Robert Ellsworth's cinematography and all of its wonderful colorization, those blues and, and, uh, and, and capturing these, the, the, these personal touches of Doc's uh, interior concepts, you know, that that's what it's really playing around with. And Anderson uses those colors, brings us tangibly to an America of this time, but it's also Johnny Greenwood's score that invokes this feeling. It's a series of neoclassical exaltations with the occasional noodling theremin, you know, unresolved, dislocated notes and feelings. It's a perfect combination of uh, of of capturing time essence per subjective personal touch of that time place and the the music that that is behind it on a technical level obviously i think i think uh, uh, i think uh, nobody has ever said of of a paul thomas anderson film that the technicality lacks in mm-hmm. any sort of regard but it's pretty exquisite here and for the very reasons that will give you the the nuggets and the the ideas that that enhance the themes that tell you what this movie is ultimately about it's the unfinished places that we cannot necessarily articulate it's the melancholic feeling of sadness of something that is of the past that's what inherent vice kind of sits sits in and uh, so how do you how do you feel about the the cinematography the score all of these technical aspects you brought a production design costume they they tell you a lot about character and place as well all of this is kind of intertwining for a very inventive uh display of a southern california lost to time and uh it's really effective how do you feel about it robert ellswood is one of my favorite dps i actually got to i have i had the privilege of speaking to him over the phone very nice like, like uh 2019 or so he graduated from USC. It's a long story. Uh, I got his uh, phone number, some shady way. I got his phone number <laughs> and I called him and he was very nice with his time and very, very friendly. But I, I absolutely 
love him. I I love their one of my favorite collaborations is between the two of them, Anderson and Ellswit. I think it's they've been wor- it's a they shame. work they work together. Yeah, since Heart Eight, like like the, every single yeah. film, and then except the Master. Yeah, except the Master, and then Phantom Thread. I think Anderson shot is, it himself. Yeah, this is the last collaboration. Yeah, this is the last. Yeah. Uh, Inherent Vice is the last collaboration between them, and it's a shame. Uh, I do obviously, Paul Tom. Who am I to say what Paul Thomas Anderson should do? But um, his films look great post Inherent Vice, but there's I feel like there's something missing mm. that I wish he would collaborate with with uh, Ellswood again at some point. Um, I do like that, or I notice that that um, the use of 35 millimeter is really great for this type of film because in the master he was working on 70 millimeter yes and he was working on a bigger canvas and i'm really glad he didn't go for that with this because because of what we've talked about in the intimacy the intimacy intimacy, yeah it would have been completely lost like i love some of my favorite shots are just like the overhead shots of joaquin lying in his couch and the blue lighting and the orange and the it's it's just so so personal um, that I'm glad they went with the 35. Also, his use of and, and going back to the collaboration, his use of that wasn't present in the master or there will be blood of handheld shots of just improvisational almost that works so well with with the, for me it's it's a thing about because the plot is so incomprehensible that it's moving along so f- you're trying to catch up but you're you're never going to catch up that improvisational style fits perfectly for that Absolutely. that sense yeah and putting you in in the shoes of of doc i got to give a shout out as well to leslie jones the editor oh yeah yeah um, amazing the i'm a huge fan of 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 fades and just as as yeah. a, as a and, stylistic and, choice and honestly fades are often uh, kind of uh, I, I, are misused i think often they're misused yes but in this this kind of like fading into the next memory or the next story the next mm-hmm. recollection they, they they're entwined in this very loose connection you know and as this camera work as you said it's it, there's there's a kind of mellow and uh, there's a wariness to it all. Not it, it, think of the energy that Boogie Nights has, you know, that camera whirling, you know, those tracking yeah. shots, you know, Magnolia as well, you know, intertwining these characters rapid in a cutting. Kind of, yeah, with this rapid cutting kind of style. The energy is present. This one is lackadaisical. It's languid, particularly so you get into the mood and the feeling. Yeah, it lures you in. Yeah. It's hypnotic, yeah. It's hip, yeah, yeah, and I, and uh, and also like the the that with the, the the lack of coverage that the that the film has adds to that luring in that hypnotic quality, and yeah, the J- Johnny Greenwood, uh, I think that's the third time they're collaborating, yeah, and I think it's his most subdued out of out of the scores up to that point. Oh, certainly, certainly in blood. comparison to There Will Be Blood, yeah, subdued. Yeah. And The Master, it's <laughs> it's just such an interesting choice because maybe like like because of the zany quality of some of the characters, you would think that he would go more bombastic, but he doesn't. He it's very very sparse and subdued, uh, which I think is just an interesting choice. Yeah, 
I mean, the textured and, lensing, the textured quality, I mean, it just gets us in the hallucinatory state mm-hmm. of what the story and the mystery are. are and, and it's all, all of its indecipherableness. Like, it, all of it is complementary to the very notion that the answers are unknowable. It's about a feeling and a decision. You have to make a decision. When things are unanswerable, you have to make a decision still. You can't be lost in it. And that's what Doc ends up doing. And the, the, the camera work, the 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 editing, the score, it's all complementary to the process of that. Like the that mm-hmm. that inability to explain and to feel, um, but but to ha- to to have something at the end, to have some sort of moral clarity. You know, that's all you can have. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think it it definitely marks because of all that we've discussed and discussed and the tech also the the technical aspects around the film i do think it it does mark a shift in paul thomas anderson's work because it's it's almost like punch drunk love marked marked a shift Mm -hmm. from his 90s films and then we got the there will be blood and 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 the master which i think are very much in dia in dialogue with each other i do i do feel that i don't know if you if you oh no no absolutely They, they those are the two most in line with how they are put together mm-hmm. and since there's a Inher- formalism there yeah. that's very present very obvious yeah and and ever since inherent vice it hasn't felt the same no. so it has it deviated and has yet to go back to that and who knows what will what he'll do next like what what he'll mine in the territory whether mm-hmm. it be personal whether it be ensemble whether it be time period it it it, it will be a question and it's um it, it's exciting. It's exciting uh, that a filmmaker operates on this level and brings us these kinds of. I mean, these these are gifts. Whether or not this is your favorite or least favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie, what does that matter when an artist mm-hmm. is giving you something that to latch onto, to grasp onto, and to uh, enjoy in varying ways? Because this movie has a lot to offer. Yeah, and see your favorite and and. And inherent vice, they they serve as 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 pinnacle like moments of of stylistic change for him. Absolutely, so very important. Yeah, and and also I, I do want to emphasize that as I've watched the film more like in recent years, I feel also a personal sort of oddly personal attachment to the movie because of the themes. Because I see a lot of a lot of the things that happen with real estate with disillusion with loss i feel a lot that's happening in puerto rico yeah like coming back to after having lived in this is a very personal take on the film but having lived in in la for uh over five years and then coming back and seeing a puerto rico that's different and it's constantly changing and like a lot of the 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 similar things are happening like real estate american investors coming and and gentrifying and changing and displacing it's i I feel i feel an odd connection that i obviously didn't have when i first watched it and i love how that's a very important thing for me how how you change uh with films as you watch them throughout the years there's a with them there's an interesting sour mood and a it's not bitter it's sour and it's it's sad and it's sobering it's like looking at what was possible and sitting in the time that it did not offer up the promise it did not fulfill the promise set, set in 2014 i think it might it, it it's capturing a mood of and and, and this is we're not going to go too much down this road cuz we should go to conclusion um but mm-hmm. but 
um, the politics of its era, like we had this uprising of hope in like 2008. And by 2014, I think f- people felt like it, it was gone. Like that, mm-hmm. that things that were not necessarily fulfilled in its promise that, and then look two years later, we are given something of, of a Nixon sort of shift, like a pendulum mm-hmm. swing that people were not necessarily ready for or or could, could conceive and maybe it has something to do with paul thomas anderson sitting in that feeling movies are of the you know he is reflecting on the past and of, of time but why is he making it in 2014 why is he making it in 2010 there might be a mood on the ground there's a mood that perhaps things are not as what they should be are not fulfilled and mm-hmm. I think we can all relate to that. Like we have these ideas, of what should the ideal be? And we, we want to put them in motion in, in motion. And that could be for Puerto Rico personally, for Mario, it can be for the United States as a whole. It could be for the world, but right. disillusionment exists and sadness for what could have been uh, is very apparent. And I think this movie can be a very personal touch for those very feelings. We can all go through that loss of idealization and, I think inherent bias is very personal in that way. And to this day, I, I I remember when I first saw it, it took me a couple days to write a review, but it really landed on this division of the, these two characters of Bigfoot and Doc and that they're representative of something that's lost and they are trying to articulate something that's lost. And that's remained with me today. And uh, it makes me appreciate this movie Greatly. Uh, I want to throw it to you, Mario. I want to give you the final thought. You have picked this movie. I want to give you the final say on Inherent Vice. Maybe something, maybe to summarize the talk in general, but maybe to, to put forth why, why you chose this movie in, in a final declaration. Whatever you want. This is your time, Mario. How would you like to end our conversation on Inherent Vice? Yeah, I, I really think that this film opened... It's not the only one that, that did this, but I, I do go back to that time period 2014 15 16 as for me personally a, a, a time period where i was pushing myself to to find new ways to watch and engage with with films and not and it's happened to me in, in other cases uh, other moments uh, other films where i initially don't react in a particularly positive way but something lingers in my mind that i should engage or or re-engage with the work in a different way give it time let it sink in be receptive to to those things that are maybe uncomfortable or you're not used to and then uh give it time and then rewatch it and then see how you appreciate it then and i i do think that this film was like the the starting point of that for me and so it opened up new ways of of watching and also event like uh uh, later later on much much later uh, new ways of reading engaging with with i know this is a film podcast but also like uh reading uh pinchon and, and it opened it really did open up new 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 ways of reading and and uh new ways of of telling stories in a literary way and and what books can do as well yeah so they're tied together in that odd way uh, i wasn't ex- it wasn't something that i was uh expecting when i was first watching it right so it's a very it's a very important film for me in that way and obviously tying it up with my love for Paul Thomas Anderson which started much earlier than Inherent Vice but has persisted even though with films that I'm not as as fond of uh, like Licorice Pizza that I still find something that I go back to to his films You can always are, find something in his movies yeah, yeah that are just worthwhile and you just keep learning and learning from 
from the greats such as him. So, yeah. Well, I, I love and, this movie. And honestly, this the, this is a, a really good example of where the broadening of education in cinema can, can give you. Like, start with a filmmaker mm. that you love. What influenced them? What inspired them to go down those paths? Yeah, go read mm-hmm. Thomas Pynchon. You know, like what what was it about? that novel that influenced Paul Thomas Anderson. It was that it, it wasn't the anger, it was the sadness. There's anger in that mm-hmm. novel, but there's sadness as well. It's sadness, you know, this forlorn quality of of something lost. And that's definitely something he could relate to. And we can all relate to. And so go down those paths, read those novels, like read, you know, and then and then see those influences refracted on influences. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's the same I like that Paul Thomas Anderson, while he writes original material, will also adapt. Like Upton Sinclair's Oil, like is a fascinating template for what he develops for There Will Be Blood. It's very Paul Thomas Anderson, but it is also in- integral to understanding an early look of someone who is on the ground of that history. You know, using Upton Sinclair's perspective to really understand its time and place. But then also to look. I mean, There Will Be Blood is kind of about the obsession of oil during our early 2000s. Like, you know, it's there's no mistakes here. Paul Thomas Anderson is making movies for our time, but trying to look at the past and how it can maybe parallel and mirror it much in the same way. He uses the mirroring of, of his characters quite often. And inherent vice is one of his best at doing so. Mario, I want to thank you so much for bringing this to the show because while we probably would have tackled Inherent Vice on the show at some point, maybe revisiting Noir, I like the idea that it was a personal pick and it's a personal touch. And uh, I always am, uh, you know, every time someone asks me to talk about a favorite filmmaker, I try and find some off-the-cuff chapter mm-hmm. or underappreciated little film that I love in in the in the vein. Like, I was just asked to do a podcast and they were like, and uh, it was the, I, down to, I picked Punch Drunk Love for uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. I picked Inside Lewin Davis for... Uh, for the Coen brothers and they went with inside Lewin Davis. And uh, I was glad to talk about it because I, it, it, that movie is very personal to me because of its themes and its ideas. It's, and so this is what it's all about. It's like having these connections. And I, I love that. It's a story of recontextualizing revisiting, you know, it's like oftentimes a, a favorite can develop not initially, but over time. And it's because of our, of how we change or how that movie reframes our change. And so I thought that was great. Thank you so much for bringing this and being part of the show. I suppose. Thank you so much. No, no, thanks for being here. And so you have a production company. What's on the horizon for you all? (laughs) So much. Uh, So it's called this VO productions, D E S V I O productions uh, based in Puerto Rico. And we are currently working on two music videos uh, that we're going to shoot just before Christmas. Wow. So we're just in that while we're also editing other projects for other clients, but that's going to occupy the, the remainder of the year. And then hopefully new exciting projects with new clients and more importantly, developing, we're developing two short films uh, right now, looking for funding that both could serve as proof of concept. So eventually down the line, Film is very expensive to, to make. Yep. Uh, make um, a full a feature length versions of those shorts. That's the end goal. 
Well, that's very exciting. And I'm, I'm glad you're busy. Obviously, busyness makes it stressful. You know, you're you're constantly throwing, having plates in the air, and balance, doing that. It's good problems. Act. Good problems to have for good, sure. Good problems to have for sure. Well, keep keep being busy. Keep up the productive quality. Uh, you're one of my busiest guests, so uh, I appreciate your time and I appreciate contributions. Thank you so much. I usually tell people what's coming next, and maybe I will edit this in later, but uh, the recording schedule has been real sporadic for this one, so they might fall into place as they come along, so uh, be on the lookout for another favorite. All of them have been uh, incredible conversations so far, and I'm loving getting to know my guests and their favorites, but Mario, thank you for bringing inherent vice to us, and for those listening, thank you for joining I Know Movies and You Don't. That's me, your host, Kyle Brule. And we'll see you there.